We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. I'm very happy, um, and I think the true fans know that um, and know how much I care about this city um, and how bad I want to win here. Like I said, those bright spots have been very bright for us, and the young core that we have moving forward, I'm very excited to get part of. Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike Vigil. I'm the host here, and joining me is my co-host, Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mike. I'm just fiending for NBA coaching news, <laughs> specifically Phoenix Suns coaching news. Give me anything. We have uh, we have the notifications set up for Woj and uh, Shams. Every once in a while, I just go check to make sure it didn't work. I'm like, did I miss something? Because I feel like we should know by now, but nope, we don't. Uh, most recent news, they're interviewing again. But before we get into all that Suns news, let's quickly talk about ourselves uh just real quick as you heard up top we are now part of the blue wire podcast network um this is a podcast network that has other podcasts like the lakers film room podcast uh sharp notes with ben dowsett uh, hardwood Knox, one of the bigger ones on that network they have 10 nba podcasts and we are now the official phoenix suns podcast for the blue wire podcast network haven't talked about it yet on the podcast we did talk about it a little online uh what does this mean to you guys well not really much yet (laughs) um it could mean ads down down the line in the future um that's a possibility not a lot though uh, on that one because uh well we don't really we're not super super popular so (laughs) you know we're just a phoenix suns podcast um the one thing i do want to say is it shouldn't change 
a lot about how we talk about the game. It shouldn't change anything about how it's produced. As far as if you enjoy this podcast, I don't think it's going to change much on your end from the listener's side there. Sam, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the one thing it changes and, and a big reason we were eager to kindly kind of finally jump into something like this is just we want to bring on bigger guests uh, to talk to you guys about basketball, whether they uh, worked the game through a number of angles, players, coaches, uh, you know, guys in floor zero through floor four, so to speak, if we're going to use the <laughs> Suns training facility uh, as an analogy. Uh, and, and of course, j- more journalists as well. So we really want to bring in bigger guests. And as a couple guys who kind of started this whole thing on Reddit, we found that to be a bit of a challenge for us uh, staying independent. So yeah, I mean, I, there may be ads down the line. They'll be non-intrusive uh, and, and there really won't be that many of them. And from a creative standpoint, uh, absolutely nothing changes uh, except hopefully we can bring on some bigger guests to talk to you guys. So definitely excited for whatever the future holds. And I do want to say before we get into the episode, thank you to everyone that's listened to us for this first season. We're, we're almost up to a year of this podcast. We've got about a month left and then it'll be exactly a year that we've been doing this podcast. So thank you to everyone that's joined us on this journey so far. We're hoping to grow from here and get some more listeners. Feel free to tell your friends about us. Hopefully uh, we'll continue bringing you the greatest content that we could possibly bring you. Uh, But let's get into it. We have actually a lot to talk about. First, we're just going to go over some news, Sam and I. Coming up up later, Shamit Dua, who is actually, he's a podcaster for the Blue Wire Podcast Network. He's also an RNBA mod, Kumar. Lots of people will recognize his username. Uh, But he covers the New Orleans Pelicans. He's going to come on and talk to us a lot about Monty Williams. So if you're wondering why we're not talking about him here at the beginning of the podcast, it's because we got about half an hour on Williams at the end of this podcast. Definitely stick around. That's a really great interview that we already uh, covered. But it's been a little over a week, almost two weeks now, since Igor Kokoshkov was fired. Now, we got our immediate reactions recorded the night that he was fired. It's been a little bit longer now. We've had a little bit time, a little bit of time to think about it and, and read some other stories on it. Uh, just quickly, Sam, how do you feel now? Do you feel any different now than that night? I don't feel any strong urge to have changed my opinion. Sometimes I do, but on this, I feel basically the same way. Uh, well, you know, there was like a very short 15 minute to half hour period the night of of anger. And then I think like we were tw- just texting back and forth mm-hmm. after the news broke and I was angry, <laughs> you know, all caps, all caps. But then by the time we actually hopped on to record, I think you probably heard it in my voice. It was mostly just sadness. Mm-hmm. And I think now I've basically moved on. It's It just still doesn't strike me as something that needed to be done. Uh, but, you know, it's it hasn't killed me. We'll move on. Uh, obviously, you know, you guys all saw the product out there on the court. 19 wins speaks for itself t- to an extent. Uh, I just hope Igor gets another job in the NBA soon because I really do think the Suns disrespected him uh, to some extent. One of the big thoughts that has stuck with me throughout all of this is I just feel bad for Igor Kokoshkov as a person, regardless of the NBA. And this is commonly how I feel <laughs> following the Suns. I feel like a lot of people don't get their the chances that they d- deserve. And if they do, then they're not given all of the resources to be fully successful. And I think this is another example of that happening. So as a person, I just feel bad for him. I, I felt like he was put in an unwinnable situation, hired by a GM that was fired less than three months later, and then a new general manager stepped in to uh, hire his own guy. And I think a lot of this 
is just because uh, James Jones wanted to hire a new guy. But we did have an interesting article that I did want to talk to you about, Sam. This was written by Ashley Neville, who writes for Bright Side of the Sun. She's been in the locker room for about half of the season. She's talked to a lot of the players one-on-one. And she had an article that had some anonymous quotes from Suns players talking about Igor Kokoshkov. Uh, we can maybe try and guess who some of these players are if you want, Sam, but I'm going to read a little bit, a, a segment of that. Make sure to check it out on Bright Side of the Sun for those of you who have not read it. She said, one player that Kokoshkov, one player said that Kokoshkov is a great assistant coach, but not a head coach. Another told her that many of them would leave huddles or practices confused about what Kokoshkov wanted them to do on the court. There was definitely a cultural and communication barrier between him and his players, and it showed in many situations. Another player who, this one is the one that I think is Jamal Crawford. He said, good coach, just (laughs) tough situation. (laughs) Smart, though, and will definitely be a head coach again. That's just the type of quote to me. That sounds like Jamal. That is, it sounds like Jamal, and it sounds like a vet. It sounds like a guy who has seen a lot and understands situations and and understands how it works. And that's really what I wanted to say, um, because... How we interpret this depends entirely. Of course, Ashley had to protect confidentiality. So we we just don't know exactly who said this. But how we interpret this paragraph here depends entirely on who's saying it. Because if it's, you know, DeAnthony Melton, you know, leaving huddles or practice confused when he's a rookie player or or saying that there's, you know, some sort of cultural communication barrier who wasn't entirely happy. not calling out to Anthony Melton. I'm just using a random name. But but the greater point being that half of this roster, even more than half of them, are really young rookie contract players that aren't going to know what they're doing anyway. And I think that's true regardless of who the coach is. And even for some of the veterans on this team, the, the so-called veterans like Devin Booker and TJ Warren, they don't know what winning basketball looks like. So I don't know that I would necessarily take criticism towards Igor from them right? as as well. Really, the only person's opinion who I might be interested in hearing from here is a guy like Jamal Crawford, a guy who's actually been on some winning basketball teams. And of course, we don't know who that final quote uh, is from the the saying, you know, good coach, just tough situation. If I had to guess, it's Mm. probably Jamal Crawford. (laughs) Yeah, here's an experiment. I'm going to read I'm going to read this paragraph two times here and put some names in. Uh, Troy Daniels said Kokoshkov is a great assistant coach, but not a head coach. Dragon Bender told me many of them would leave the huddles of practice confused about what Kokoshkov wanted them to do on the court. Yeah. If I read that, I would say, uh, whatever. But if I read it like this, Devin Booker told me Kokoshkov is a great assistant coach, but not a head coach. And DeAndre Ayton said many of them would leave the huddles of practices confused about what Kokoshkov wanted them to do on the court. Those are two drastically different paragraphs based on which players we put in there now that's not to say this isn't a great article i actually did think it's great it's nice to hear from the players kind of regardless of what position they hold in the hierarchy of the team but it's interesting anyway because uh, it's nice to get some insight from that locker room now the one thing that i was a little bit surprised about is becoming a story was the cultural barrier i think that's become Mm -hmm. a, a bigger story than i anticipated Igor Kokoshkov does have a very thick accent, and some, I'll be honest, sometimes it is difficult to understand. Did you anticipate that becoming a story? Uh, it's, it feels a little Arizona-y, if I, you will. But. I anticipated it becoming a story. I don't personally understand it. I don't think he's that hard to understand. Well, here's what I want to say. I want to tell a story, actually. When the season was starting, I went to a season ticket event where 
Igor Kokoshkov spoke, Ryan McDonough spoke, and some other people from the Suns spoke, including some of the rookies. And Igor Kokoshkov told a story about Hakeem Olajuwon, and uh, he was talking about visiting Hakeem Olajuwon and uh, talking about counting missed blocks, basically statistics for mistakes. And the way he told the story, the way I understood it was that DeAndre Ayton was there too, and that's what I tweeted out. And I re-listened to the video after I tweeted it out, and I just couldn't understand what he said. So what I decided to do is reach out to someone that was within the Suns organization, someone that I had spoken with in the past. I'm not going to sell this person out, but uh, I, I said, is there any way that you can clarify what was said that night? I want to make sure I get this right online. And that person told me, uh, I'll be honest, I didn't understand him. And they said I, I was standing very near him, and I couldn't understand exactly what he said. So I just want to say that actually it's it's just kind of more interesting than I thought because it actually affected me personally and I was you know standing very close to Igor Kokoshkov when he spoke and I still misinterpreted something that he said. So I actually I I think that it's silly and I think that it's sad that this is something that's become a story, but I think there's actually something to it if if you're having a difficulty understanding exactly what the coach is saying that's hard and and you don't want to you don't want to belabor anything within a practice by saying I'm sorry what was that uh, a, a lot of times so it's really I think it's unfortunate that this became a story but I actually kind of when I heard it I actually did kind of understand it yeah I don't know I mean I, I don't really know how to react to that I, I your story is valid of course that uh, we misspeak yeah. too you know I, I think there's potential right. for, for anyone to do it uh, there are plenty of international players who seem to perform perfectly well at the NBA level who speak much, much worse English uh, than Igor Kokoshkov. I mean, you know, Goran Dragic came in, could barely speak English when he was first playing with the Phoenix Suns. He was still able to run his right. sets as a point guard. So I don't know. I just I don't buy into it that much. He coached two different national teams. Neither one was in his native language. But, you know, neither here nor there. I think that it's important for a leader to be clear and concise in what their expectations are for anyone that they're leading. But I don't think that English being your second language is something that really affects that too, too much. I think it's possible for someone that spoke English their entire life to not be super clear about what's expected of, of these players. So it's just unfortunate, but I do understand the, the prioritizing of, uh, of somebody who's clear and concise in their messaging going forward, especially for young guys. I think understanding what's expected of you, we've talked about it before. So often we talk about effort on this team and, and these guys just need to play harder. And I, I personally, I hate when people say that. <laughs> I don't like it at all. I think that saying you need to play harder is actually something that causes a lot of young players to make a lot of mistakes because they end up running faster or or, or doing too much <clears throat> instead Josh of doing Jackson. exactly... Yeah, like Josh Jackson, exactly. But what I think is important for playing harder, I think what's, what's interpreted for a lot of people as playing harder is understanding exactly what's expected of you in every situation. We commonly think the Spurs play harder than every team. They get all these no-name guys to play so well. It's because each of those guys understands what their role is exactly within the team. So if that was a problem, regardless of the reason why, then I actually do understand why Igor Kokoshkov was let go at this point. But but the further away we get from that date, the more I think it was just because James Jones wants his own guy. Do you agree with that? 100%. That's all it is. And, you know, right. James Jones is tearing down the entire, this is a good segue, James Jones is tearing down the entire organization because they want their guys. Him and Jeff Bauer and Robert Sarver, they just want their guys. Uh, doesn't doesn't matter the performance of 
you know, the, the prior staff, doesn't matter how many years they worked for the organization, you know who I'm hinting at now. <laughs> yes. So t- to talk about that, Igor Kokoshkov was not the only one let go. Uh, the entire coaching staff was let go. At the time that we recorded our reaction podcast, we weren't sure. We, we did mention it. We weren't really sure what was going to happen to the rest of the assistant coaches. Now we know they were let go. Um, the entire analytics staff, from what I can tell, uh, based on something that uh, Cole Zwicker actually tweeted out, was was let go as well. Um, and that's that means that they're starting from ground zero. And the next one on that, uh, Aaron Nelson. Aaron Nelson was hired by the New Orleans Pelicans. There's been two head athletic trainers in the Phoenix Suns history. Aaron Nelson was one of them. He's been with the team for over 20 years. He's had a great reputation. The Suns training staff in the past was called one of the most forward-thinking training staffs. A lot of the older free agents that we've signed have been because of somebody like Aaron Nelson, and he is now gone. This is a huge loss in my opinion. I've seen a lot of people tweeting out that we've had a lot of injuries recently, and, and it's unfair to uh, say that he's as great as people have been saying they are. I just disagree with that. I think this is a huge loss. What do you think, Sam? I think it's a huge loss as well. And I think this is a business of what have you done for me lately? That's really how it operates. And people see Devin Booker's hamstring issues and, and some turned ankles and TJ Warren's mysterious head problems or whatever. <laughs> and and they assume that Aaron Nelson is uh, maybe kind of off his game. And it's true. Most of the puff pieces we saw about the Suns training staff, admittedly, were close to 10 years ago now. But I I still think those success stories speak for themselves. Steve Nash was an all-star through age 37. Shaquille O'Neal came to Phoenix, hated that trade, but he had a resurgence, uh, made the all-star game, you know, was able to stay healthy in his time here. Amari had four all-NBA selections after microfracture surgery, which is basically unheard of. You've got guys who are still in the NBA or at least recently retired like Channing Frye, Jared Dudley, who have praised him. Grant Hill praised him. Guys like Michael Redd, Jermaine O'Neal are free agents who came here specifically because of this training staff. And if you're one of those people that's asking, well, why don't free agents still do that today? It's because no matter how good the reputation of the training staff is, the Suns still fucking suck. And no veteran wants to come play on a team when they know that that team won't play meaningful basketball in March or April, but theoretically, and this is just theoretically, but if Devin Booker and DeAndre uh, DeAndre Ayton went thermonuclear next year and suddenly the Suns were back in contention, I guarantee you if they had Aaron Nelson, that would be a pull for some ring chasers to come here because the fountain of youth reputation is still very much a thing throughout the league. Now, have other teams caught up in terms of their technology uh, to the Phoenix mm. Suns in the past 10 years? That's an interesting question. That's a question I, I mm. just have no way of answering. I think it's very likely possible that that is the case. Uh, but, you know, for an organization that has finally had some stability in this one area, like you said, only two athletic uh, trainers in the entire his- history of the franchise, I just don't see the point of having turnover for the sake of turnover. This is one area of the culture that, you know, if anything else, I think this could have been salvaged. Uh, but it's just clear that James Jones wants to bring in fresh blood from, uh, you know, every possible position. Yeah, let's talk about that. Kevin Arnovitz, who's been covering the Suns a lot, uh, he was the one that wrote the takedown piece on Robert Sarver. He also has appeared on the Low Post podcast to talk about the Phoenix Suns multiple times. He said that the Phoenix Suns are stripping floor zero down to the studs. That's the way he worded it. 
And to clarify what that means, floor zero on at the actual arena is where the coaching staff and the players are. It's also where the training staff and the weight room are. The front office is all on floor four. Now, this is a problem, even just thinking about it physically. The fact that they are on different floors makes it already feel disconnected. One of the ideas around the new practice facility is putting them all in the same space so the front office and the coaching staff, along with the players, all feel like one team working together rather than a separated group. So step one in in rebuilding the coach culture for James Jones is stripping floor zero down to the studs, meaning getting rid of everybody and rebuilding it from the ground up. There's something in that very first Kevin Arnovitz piece that I wanted to point out from uh, that, that I think led to Aaron Nelson being allowed to let go. And I know he wasn't fired, but he essentially was. I think that's actually important to say because part of what Kevin Arnovitz talked about is uh, he the impression that he had was that that stripping floor zero down to the studs included the training staff, getting a new training staff. One of the things that Kevin Arnovitz pointed out in his first article about the Phoenix Suns is that one of the first priorities for James Jones was to fix the weight room for the players. And the weight room is that's purview, that's part of the purview of the training staff. And if James Jones showed up to the Suns as somebody who has been on multiple championship teams and was a part of the Miami team that is famous for getting their players in excellent excellent shape and immediately identified a problem with the weight room it stands to say that he probably put that on the training staff, that he probably thought that the training staff should have should have recognized that this was not up to snuff. He fixed the weight room, according to this Kevin Arnovitz piece, and the players immediately be- became, became more strong. I don't really know exactly <laughs> what happened out, out of that, but I guess the idea is that it's built more like an NBA weight room now. It's, it's built more to a modern NBA weight room. The famous thing that the Miami Heat team does is measure the body fat percentage of everybody on the team, and they expect them when they join the team to lower that body fat percentage and be at the height of of their uh, athletic abilities while they're playing with the Miami Heat. So I find it interesting that the first thing he did was change the weight room, and he did not have any attachment to that training staff as they were set to leave to a new team. I think that those are related, and I think that he holds Aaron Nelson responsible for not really keeping that up to snuff. What now, you, something I've said online... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just... No, I probably shouldn't say it. <laughs> okay, what, now I want to know what it is. What do you think Nikola Jokic would look like on the Miami Heat? <laughs> well... There's a famous uh, before and after picture of Dion Waiters. Have you seen that? No, I actually haven't, but now I really want to look it up. It's it's really incredible to think about uh, where he was and where he uh, became uh, when he was with the Miami Heat because he was a little out of shape, and then uh, and then he took a picture after being on the Heat for a little over a year, and he was ripped. He was he was more he looked more like an athlete. This was of course shirtless pictures. These are guys trying to show off their gains, so so you can really see how it changed his body and how his body was really re rebuilt on the Miami Whoa. team. And I think you're looking at He's it now. So much more lean. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder if James Jones is trying to, uh, get it into that level of strength and conditioning. And, uh, he wants to try and build it around that. Now it should be said what the Suns actually said about this. And what they said is they're planning on working with their two partners, the Steward Healthcare Group and Exos, which is a new partner. Um, they said the team is leveraging its partnership with Steward, including its national network of physicians and specialists. And if you recognize that sentence, it's because it's in every Steward commercial 
which is what made this feel like it's an nothing. ad. It's don't even talk about this. It's nothingness. Right. It was paragraphs yes, of a PR they also, release. Well, no, no. I think what's important about this to me is it sounds like they're not planning on hiring a head athletic trainer, which is bizarre. No, they're going to have a head. It's really bizarre. They're going to have a head athletic trainer. They did, my problem was that they didn't say anything in four paragraphs. You know, they, they one sentence, we'll one see. sentence to thank Aaron Nelson for 20 years of service and then four right. paragraphs. That's that, what bothered yeah. me. They're going to have a head trainer. They're, they're, they have to, right? I don't know, no, Sam. No, 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 no. No, I th- no because here's the two things that make me believe that they're not going to. When James, before Aaron Nelson was fired, James Jones talked about innovative partnerships, potential innovative partnerships with the Suns that could lead to different, the different looks of a front office. And then uh, Aaron Nelson was fired or let go, uh, allowed to go to another team. Uh, and they're talking about this partnership, this idea of a partnership that could, that could result in a different style of training staff. And I just, I don't know. I don't know that that's going to happen. To me, it sounds like a rich guy trying to take away from a hired labor and, and hire, uh, you know, to, to send it out, third party it, to, to get contracted labor instead of hiring somebody. And it, is that so far out of the question of something that Robert Sarver would do? If you're trying to strip your organization down to the studs for the purpose of rebuilding its image, and we're not just talking about cost, then that would be a disastrous idea because of people like us and, yeah. and, well, and people who, you know, have much more influence than us. Uh, ripping yeah. the organization to shreds. Yeah. So I worry about that. We're gonna have, obviously we're gonna, we're going to be following that story as it goes. Sam and I are very invested in this new training facility, so of course we're gonna uh, cover exactly how it's filled once we do hire new people. And speaking of hire new people, one person was hired, so no head coach, <laughs> no athletic trainer, maybe no analytic staff, except for maybe possibly this person. But we did hire. An assistant coach named Ricardo, and I'm going to say this how I think it's pronounced. And Sam, you could tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. I would guess Foie, like Foie Gras. Yeah, Ricardo Foie. He's actually Italian. That's a French word, but uh, from Gonzaga. So Ricardo Foie was a, he's actually an Italian, uh, someone who played on the Italian national team. And he's an analytics (laughs) expert. yeah, he's someone who was quoted saying analytics plays into the culture and the ways you try to build your team. So this is an interesting quote just from that perspective. Uh, Sam Vecini, I'm going to have to find out why you're laughing so hard here, Sam, quickly. But Sam Vecini said that he called this a great hire. Uh, somebody who maybe knows a little bit more than I do about this because I don't follow college basketball like I would like to if I had more time to. And he said that Ricardo Foaz role within Gonzaga was to take analytics and reword them into something that was easy for coaches and players to understand. So instead of just giving numbers and statistics, he was saying, take this shot, not that shot, basically making it easier for uh, people on the front of house essentially to understand. So Sam, what do you think about this? (laughs) It's no, I'm laughing because the article that I know both of us are looking at about this so-called, he could be a great hire. For all I know, but this this article is written by someone. It reads like someone who has never watched a game of basketball in their life. (laughs) (laughs) Because read this, read this paragraph. (laughs) A basic type of analytics research Foie implements on Gonzaga's game plan is coaching players to avoid shots from just inside the three point line. A shot from the three-point line has the same percent chance to be made as a shot from slightly inside the arc. However, the shot from inside the arc 
only counts as two points. <laughs> Bravo, Phoenix. A true a true number a true number mastermind we brought in to usher us into the new era. You know what this reminds me of is the commercials for the Suns broadcast where they had the analytics, the like That's VP Jake, of analytics uh, guy explained. He was just let go. Loose. Jake, yeah. He's gone. He was. Jake Loose. Yeah, and that was essentially, and just like this article, that was essentially like the Sesame Street version of basketball. Okay, so here's my real opinion. I believe that this guy is an analytical mind who knows so much beyond what this article is telling me, which is nothing. Right. It was 2017, Sam. It was a different time, 2017. That's true. (laughs) I think he's, I think Gonzaga's been a really interesting team for a while. They've been good at developing (laughs) big men, and as we... We've expected that they're going to target people based on uh, developing DeAndre Ayton and his importance to this t- this team going forward. And uh, I think that this was another hire with that in mind. I, I don't know much about him beyond that, and I don't know what, how big of a role he's going to play. It sounds like he wanted to get into the NBA. That's kind of the route that people get to the Suns, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is my only option? Okay, I'll do it. Hey, if this means Brandon Clark is coming to Phoenix, and I'm all for it, Brandon Clark is yeah. the you know, the analytics pick mm-hmm. in this draft. Mm-hmm. Um, if it means Rui Hachimura is coming to Phoenix, I don't know. Well, I think that's actually a good point, though. Brandon Clark is the analytics pick, likely because of a guy like Ricardo Foix, someone who has explained to Brandon Clark exactly how to optimize his skill set to be the most efficient offensive and defensive player possible. So I think if you're looking at it from that perspective, then you can say that this is an excellent hire if he had anything to do with that. The level of which he actually uh, changed Brandon Clark as a player is unknown by us at this time. But I think it's an interesting hire, and it seems like a hire with the right type of things in mind to compete in this era of the NBA. Um, Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. We'll see what he is. Um, There's a couple more rumors. Now, of course, the Suns did... By the way... Did you notice that Mark Stein is breaking a lot of Suns news lately? Yeah, but not more so than than usual. Why? Do you have a... I have, th- I have a theory. Okay. I'm wondering if he's a Jeff Bowers guy. I didn't think he I didn't think he broke a lot of news about the Suns previous to Jeff Bowers hire and then all of a sudden Did he uh, break a lot of news about Detroit? Like why why a Jeff Bauer guy? Just 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 from the timeline of which these uh these ideas came because what uh-huh. I I had suspected previously you and I have talked about this and I know I'm the only one who cares about this so I won't spend too much time on it but I I expected that Shams had had some insight into this team uh, previously because he broke a lot of news for the Suns and he wasn't exactly a guy that broke a lot of news for the Suns previously. So I saw that uptick after McDonough left and I was wondering if maybe somebody on the Suns was connected. Now that everyone's gone, we don't know where, <laughs> where they're getting their their news from. But the fact that there's really no staff in Phoenix right now, but Mark Stein is still getting this information means it's probably coming from someone pretty high up. Unfortunately, one of those things I just don't think we'll ever... No. Get confirmation of. but No, it's just my theory. But it's an interesting theory, though. Yeah. Uh, some last rumors before we take a break here. Along with interviewing Mon- Monty Williams for a uh, second time, uh, the Suns are also supposedly interviewing or have interviewed David Vanderpool and Nate Tibbetts from the Portland Trailblazers, two longtime assistant coaches in the mold, I think, of... Igor Kokoshkov, two assistant coaches who've coached for good teams, potentially looking at their first chance. A different 
selection, a different type of guy than Williams, of course, but two interesting mm-hmm. candidates. I don't have a lot of thoughts on these guys just yet because to me, it really seems like it's pointing towards Williams more than anything else. But what do you think, Sam? It does. I think they're doing due diligence, which is good. Um, I think it's a little frustrating almost how many parallels there are. David Vanterpool uh, has been an assistant coach with Portland for several years. He's been interviewed for many head coaching positions at this point. But Portland's a fast-paced, up-tempo, guard-driven team where Vanterpool specifically has been credited for the development of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. I think that's just a little bit interesting considering how much we heard about Igor coming in working with Ricky Rubio and obviously Goran Dragic and Luka Doncic in, in Slovenia. It feels like there are a lot of parallels there. Um, but other than that, I don't really have any thoughts on these names. Um, I don't know how likely they are to progress to the next round. Right. Neither one has gotten a second interview yet. If that does happen, if these guys are more connected to the Phoenix Suns going forward, I can assure you that Sam and I will try and get someone on similar to Schmidt, who's coming on very soon for you guys to hear to talk about Williams. And uh, we'll try and get some more information about these two guys. But uh, before we go to a break, Sam, I do want to ask you, do you have any thoughts on the playoffs so far real quick? Yeah, I've been watching, uh, obviously, the the West. Doesn't it feel like Shades of 2007 right now yeah. in the West? feels exactly like 2007. Well, when you say that, who what do, do I mean? Th- who do you think the Suns are in that scenario? The Suns are obviously the Rockets. See, I think of the Suns as the Nuggets. No, 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 no. Let me explain <laughs> what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> the the Warriors and Rockets are the only series anyone is interested in right, right now. Okay. Whichever team wins that series is going all the way, and everyone knows it, and that's why there's so much focus all the way as in at least to the finals. I do think Milwaukee or Toronto could could upset potentially, especially if it was Houston somehow got there. Um but everyone knows that whichever team wins that series is going to the finals. Uh, and that's why there's so much focus on the refing right, right now and and so much heightened controversy uh, right. on both sides, uh, right. talking about, you know, how guys are attacking closeouts. Meanwhile, Portland and uh, Denver are playing a series no one cares about. That's the equivalent <laughs> of 2007. You had the eighth seeded Warriors coming off that great upset when they knocked out Dallas and they were mm-hmm. playing a Utah team. And everyone was saying, OK, you've got an upset team in Golden State versus Utah. Who's fighting for a chance to get knocked out by one of San Antonio or Phoenix now that right. Dallas is gone? It's the same exact situation. Uh, right. So it's just a little unfortunate how that seating lined up. The East has been interesting. Um, Toronto is really good. Uh, I'm, uh, and I still have faith in Milwaukee, too. I was really happy to see Milwaukee bounce back. But other than that, no strong conclusions being uh, you know, taken from me based on uh, just the first two games. I always want to see uh, both teams play at home for a couple games before making any super strong conclusions. The one thing I want to say is the way that people have vilified the Houston Rockets is interesting to me personally, because what they're doing at this point and the way that people are talking about it, because like you said, the spotlight is so bright at this point is they're really taking them to task, talking about their, the way that they take advantage of referees, the way they take advantage of those three point shots getting fouled, the way that they shoot the most free throws of anyone in the NBA. And the fact that they really look at the margins and where they could really stretch those to the absolute extreme to try and win a game. And I understand that that might not be that fun to watch, but I just want to remind people that they're playing the Golden State Warriors who drafted Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green in consecutive drafts. They've also signed the maybe the greatest player in the world at this point in Kevin Durant. And, of course, he's no longer playing, but they also have another all-star in DeMarcus Cousins. 
This is the type of thing that a team has to do to even have a chance to win against them, and they're still not winning. This is just what it takes. They have to take those types of margins to the absolute extremes and try and maximize every possession to have a chance. Yes, maybe there are things that they could do better outside of that. Maybe they should take a few more mid-range shots, but what they're no. doing is they're saying, what is our only shot to beat this team based on the numbers? What what can be our only shot? And it's just maximizing the efficiency of every single possession at, at all costs, including the entertainment value for a lot of people. So I just <laughs> want to remind people that this is what happens when you create a juggernaut like the Golden State Warriors. Teams have to become something that they hate in a sense. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's the it's the the dark night. Uh, live long enough to see yourself become the villain kind of thing. <laughs> They're trying to take down this juggernaut, and I think it's a little unfair the the type of vitriol that they've received at this point. And when maybe it should be pointed a little more uh, at the Warriors and, and and Kevin Durant. It's just the problem with the Warriors is they really built themselves kind of fairly and within the rules, so it's hard to vilify them at this point. So that's the only point I had to make on that. But before we go to the break, I just want to say, did you see that D'Angelo Russell was cited for trying to sneak marijuana through an airport in New York in a fake Arizona iced tea can? That doesn't surprise me at all. It wouldn't no. surprise Kevin Booker probably does the same thing routinely. <laughs> it's just not trying me. to call him out. I'm trying to snitch. But. Well, I think that most NBA players probably because of the, the way they test most NBA players probably do. Uh, partake in some marijuana from for time sure. to time. Oh, for sure. This generation, there's there's yeah. not a doubt. Yeah, but what I find funny about it is the idea of sneaking it through <laughs> in a Arizona iced tea can, which is like essentially designed to what, like take camping or something in case you get pulled over. It's not. Yeah. It's not exactly designed for a place full of X-ray machines that can see through something like that to, to see that there's obviously forgot. something in there. You don't watch Atlanta, do you? There's this episode of Atlanta where Donald Glover's character, he plays an agent for a rapper, um, mm-hmm. accidentally brings a gun in a backpack to <laughs> airport security and is like trying to like get it off on someone else. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I could see him, D'Angelo, just uh, totally forgetting about it until the last second. Yeah. My one joke about that was, oh, it's an Arizona can, so clearly he's coming to the Phoenix Suns. And somebody looked it up and told me that uh, Arizona Ice Tea was uh, founded in Brooklyn. <laughs> as are most good things sweet sweet irony so all right let's take a break and when we come back shemit dua to talk about monty williams and the new orleans pelicans this week in sun's history long before the warriors blew a 3-1 lead the lakers did it against the phoenix suns in 2006 the Suns entered the playoffs as the number two seed and were facing the Lakers in the first round, the number seven seed. The Lakers, of course, were led by Kobe Bryant, Lamar Odom, and Smush Parker, with a team that also included Luke Walton. The Suns had no Amare Stoudemire due to an injury early in the season. The team was led by Steve Nash, Boris Diaw, Leandro Barbosa, and Raja Bell. The Suns won the first game on April 23, 2006, 107-102. And then the Lakers stunned the Phoenix Suns three games in a row and held the Suns to less than 100 points in all three of those games. Media members were already writing the obituary for the Phoenix Suns, saying that the seventh seed took down the number two seed, but then the Suns rallied. Three games in a row, they won, scoring 114 points, 126 points, and 121 points. The Lakers were stunned after they stunned the Suns. 
The Suns came back against the 3-1 deficit, and the Lakers blew a 3-1 lead. So never forget, when people point out that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead, so did Kobe Bryant. Joining us here on the Timeline Podcast is Shamit Dua, a writer for Bourbon Street Shots, writing about the New Orleans Pelicans and host of the In the Know, a New Orleans Pelicans podcast, here to talk to us about uh, the weird connections between the Suns and the Pelicans that are going on so far in this offseason. Shamit, how are you doing? I'm doing well, my man. It's uh, been a busy day, but... I can't complain. And, you know, we're just all following the busy offseason activities that every franchise is seeming to go through right now. Yeah, they, you know, it's been a while. Everyone's kind of talking about the NBA is, is a 12-month sport now, and it really feels like that things just come down. Every single week, there's something to talk about for us, and I'm sure it feels the same for you guys. You guys had an interesting year <laughs> as Pelicans <laughs> fans with uh, all of the drama surrounding the team. Um, the trade that wasn't, uh, and then a full cleaning house of your front office staff to be replaced by uh, old Phoenix Suns members. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Monty Williams first. So the Suns have been linked to Monty Williams. They've only interviewed him twice. That's the only coach that they've had a second interview with. And a lot of Suns fans don't really know how to feel about Monty Williams. And uh, we wanted to see, just from a general standpoint, just to start off, Schmidt, how do you feel about Monty Williams and his time with the New Orleans Pelicans? So I feel like any conversation about Monty Williams has to begin with how absolutely great of a human being Monty is. He's undergone a lot of challenges in his life um, with himself as well as his family. And I'm sure those of you who have been keeping up with the news are aware that he lost um, his wife in a, a car accident in Oklahoma City or in Oklahoma um, not too long ago. And so it's really been a, a troubling time for him. And, and it's awesome that he's getting back into the league and he's being sought after by uh, a few franchises. So it's really good for him. He's a really great human being. Uh, that being said, he had a pretty interesting time as a coach with the New Orleans Hornets and Pelicans. He started off where he inherited a roster with Chris Paul on it. And Chris Paul and Monty, I guess, took them to the playoffs. And it was a memorable series against the Lakers. The, the Hornets ended up losing in six. But there, were, there was a time where, where that series was tied 2-2 and Chris Paul had a, a pretty big triple-double. But that was a season, unfortunately, uh, where a lot of unraveling began. And David West had gotten injured that season. And we were missing him during the playoffs. And... Obviously, the Hornets didn't go as far as they wanted. Not too long after, you know, we traded Chris Paul and were led by a roster that was basically manned by Jarrett Jack, um, the ghost of Eric Gordon. I want to say the ghost of Eric Gordon because we, we just got him that year. He played nine games and, you know, he was supposed to be the centerpiece of the Chris Paul trade. Everyone ex was excited. And like the nine games that he did play, the, the Hornets did great. But, you know, the Jarrett Jack led that team in win shares. So you, <laughs> it wasn't a good team. But Jack was a great tank commander, and that led to Anthony Davis. And Monty had three years with a talented big man in Anthony Davis. And for, for all his warts, I will say... 
making the playoffs basically from a, a complete rebuild in in three years is a, a pretty good feat. I think if you look at the rebuilds across the league, it generally takes three to five years, and three is definitely, I, I feel like, on the faster end of, of reaching the playoffs again. And it helps having a generational talent in Anthony Davis, but I, I do feel like the team made the playoffs a little bit ahead of schedule. So that's why it was a little bit controversial right after the the Pelicans now at that time made the playoffs, Monty was fired like immediately after the playoffs. So people had mixed feelings about it. There was Monty detractors along the way for a very long time, but you know, the man had just made the playoffs. The Pelicans just had their most successful season. Davis was 21 years old. You had a pretty solid young core locked up with, with Drew Holiday, Eric Gordon was doing good things again. Tyreek Evans was doing good things. And it, it looked like this was a team that that could really go somewhere in the future. And a few days after the season ended, Monty was no longer the coach. And it was pretty surprising. It it feels like, Schmidt, what happens often when uh, coaching candidates come up, first thing you have a natural tendency to do as a fan is just look up their coaching record. And so a lot of Suns fans look up the record. They might see these rebuilding records um, losing records for a few seasons before getting back to the playoffs with uh, Anthony Davis, as you just said, and might not be too impressed. One thing that's confusing to me about that era of Hornets slash Pelicans basketball specifically is it, it felt like there were periods. Anthony Davis was clearly the guy you wanted to build around, but it felt like there were periods of maybe trying to build around Eric Gordon. There were periods of maybe trying to build around Drew Holiday, periods of maybe even trying to throw guys like Tyreek Evans into the mix. But it never really came all together because of all the injuries you guys had. And you never really had a season of three or four guys who you just got 70 plus games out of all in the same season. So my question for you, do you feel like there was some untapped potential with that core there with Monty uh, that you really kind of missed out on? Do you feel like you maybe could have taken that core and pushed it further into the playoffs, maybe been a second round team uh, or even better that early into Anthony Davis's career? Definitely. And a lot of Pelicans fans bemoan the loss of that era. We had what was called the core five and the core five were, or the finishing five. I'm sorry. It was the finishing five. It was Drew Holiday, Eric Gordon, Tyreek Evans, Ryan Anderson. Suns fans are very <laughs> familiar with that name. <laughs> and in Anthony Davis. And now the finishing five appeared in the same games. Like they all played in the same games, a total of, I believe, 32 times over three seasons. Three seasons, they only played 32 games together, which is an insane amount of games missed. And so there's definitely a a large untapped potential, but I think a lot of people argued on the flip side. It's like, well, if those guys were that talented, then, you know, any coach should be able to get them into the playoffs. And if you get them a coach that is more suited to their talents, which the idea of Alvin Gentry was, then they could do even better than than what Monty did. But yes, I do believe that there was there was a lot of wins left on the table just just out of injury. Davis struggled himself. Drew missed half the season, two seasons in a row, and you know Eric Gordon was a perennial guy who missed twenty fifteen to twenty games. So I think the the Hornets really struggled. But I, I do want to. Talk about the point of maybe building around Davis or building around Gordon or some of the other perimeter players. Now, Monty is a very conservative coach. He's very rigid. 
he has a set system and he has an idea of how he wants to develop guys. With Davis, he understood the potential, but he also wanted to protect Davis. So everyone knew, well, maybe not everyone, but the outlook for Davis in the future was he he needs to be a center, right? But in order to protect Davis, who coming into the league wasn't, his body hadn't fully developed yet. He wasn't ready to bang with some of the bigger players. And, you know, this is before the league fully transitioned away from the bigs. The first three years of Davis, there were still reliance on guys on opposing teams like Dwight Howard. We ended up getting Omer Ashik for for that very reason. Our first year, we had former Suns great Robin Lopez to take some of the the beating from Davis. But with Davis, the idea was protect him in situations where he's going to struggle and let him develop organically and we'll slowly ease him into those situations. And that didn't only apply on defense, but that applied on offense as well. So with Davis, his first year, he was what I like to call the garbage man. So yes, there were there were plays specifically run from him, mostly out of the pick and roll, but he he was responsible for generating most of his offense off of hustle plays. So offensive rebounds, transition opportunities, just being a freak athlete that he is. There wasn't much that he was allowed to do from a ball handling perspective or a playmaking perspective. And frankly, I don't think Davis had the skills coming into the league to do a lot of that either. He did slowly end up doing a lot more in the pick and pop, but that wasn't until the second season where Davis really started thriving in the mid-range. And that became his bread and butter in the third season. But, you know, there was a... a complete progression. If you go and look at his uh, shot chart, he attempted more and more mid-range shots and became more proficient at them uh, every year under Monty. And that really unlocked portions of his game because they weren't really like set plays where you can do catch and shoots. Monty eventually was having him come off screens and other creative ways to, to free him up for those shots. But Davis got really good at him. And this was before he was allowed to really extend his his range into the three-point uh three-point land and even though the league was trending that way Monty again was still protecting Davis perfect these things first protect perfect being a big man like perfect screening perfect rolling perfect all the roles that the big big man are supposed to have get that right first before we slowly add components to your game and I think it helped Davis I, I really do think that incrementing his game year by year made him into the star he is even though he may have been ready just just a, a bit early, but you know Davis didn't start fully attempting threes until he got under Gentry, and even now, like the attempts aren't as high as as some of the modern big men that you're seeing. And so, if if you guys hire Monty Williams, I would expect a similar progression with with Aiton, to be honest, because even though I believe Aiton is far more uh, polished offensively than Davis was coming into the league, uh, I do believe Monty is probably going to employ a similar strategy where he would want Aiden to perfect all the traditional big men things in as he learns the game, as the game slows down for him, and then start really branching him out. So that that's what I think you know the approach Monty played with Davis, and I think you'll probably see something similar with, with Aiden. So James Jones actually recently said that one of the reasons that Igor Kokoshkov was fired and uh, and why they are looking for a new coach now is because they want to find someone that is more in the developmental type of coach uh you know whereas Igor Kokoshkov the way he said it was that he was maybe better suited for uh maybe some older players some vets which I mean beyond that being kind of ridiculous Monty Williams as a developmental coach it sounds like you thought that he did a really great job 
developing Anthony Davis over time. I know a lot of times as fans, we can kind of get frustrated with the slow development, but that's kind of what it takes in the NBA, especially for big men. Do you think beyond Anthony Davis, do you think that Monty Williams is a great developmental coach? Do you think that's oversold? I know everyone likes to talk about how great of a person he is, and I think that actually does matter for uh, a lot of young guys to have a coach that they can trust, someone that they can relate to. But beyond that, on the actual basketball court, and uh, outside of Anthony Davis, do you consider him a good developmental coach? So, you know, I think you kind of touched on it. It's a little bit tough to attribute all of development to a a single Coach, uh, you know, the whole staff has a, a large role to play there. And whoever Monty hires will probably influence that a lot because they'll end up working with the players more individually. But as far as putting players in positions to succeed and giving them responsibilities they're ready to tackle, I do believe Monty does a fairly good job of that. I think he recognized early what Tyreek was going to be for our roster and kind of gave him the keys to, you know, you go attack that rim. We have strong offensive rebounders around you. You go attack that rim because, you know, Eric is still, if he coming off injury, he's going to be more of a shooter. And and Drew's still figuring out how to play more of a pure pure point guard position, but also play off of two other guys that are a little bit ball dominant. So Tyreek was, you know, happened to be that guy where he, he gave the keys to. And I think you saw it with, with guys like Ryan Anderson, Ryan Anderson, could have easily started on many teams at that point. And he did start for the Magic when they were pretty successful with, you know, when Dwight was still with him. But he said, you know, Ryan, we're going to give you the keys to the offense on the bench. This, this is your domain. Just take all the shots you want, exploit all the post matches you have, really grow your game. And I think Anderson really showed during his time in New Orleans, he was more than just a spot-up shooter. I mean, he looked. there were some games where he looked like the second coming of Dirk with just his his post moves and and those post one-legged fadeaways you're like what is this guy doing so i do think he is good at putting young players relatively young players in positions where they can succeed and they can handle their responsibilities overall i'd I'd have to say i'm pretty confident with monty as a instilling confidence in young players it really sounds like he would be a pretty good guy for that i have questions about the x's and o's though mostly because this is a guy the NBA has changed so much since the last time Monty Williams was a head coach in 2014, uh, the 2014-15 season. Like Teams are shooting twice as many threes now as they are then. And when you look specifically down into the X's and O's of that Pelicans team, what we saw is that, first of all, Anthony Davis, you guys were able to build around Anthony Davis, but Anthony Davis and DeAndre Ayton are very different players. DeAndre Ayton may become a fantastic defensive anchor, uh, but we haven't seen it yet. And, and I just don't think they're really at similar stages, even in their rookie seasons either, respectively. So for a guy like Monty Williams, you guys didn't shoot a lot of threes. You finished bottom 10 in the league in three-point attempt rate all five seasons that Monty Williams was there. You finished bottom 10 in the league in pace all five seasons that Monty Williams was there and really seemed to have a bit more of a defensive style uh, oriented around Anthony Davis. Do you think that same approach can work in today's NBA uh, around guys like Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, or do you really think Monty is, it doesn't matter where he's the type of coach where he's going to be able to recognize his player personnel and he's going to adapt his game plan based around what he sees on the roster and uh, that that these worries will sort of be alleviated uh, if he's hired? You know, I'm really fascinated uh, by seeing which kind of Monty we're going to see. When Monty was with the Hornets and Pelicans, the game was changing and the game passed him by. And you mentioned being the bottom bottom 10 of pace. I mean, it's not just the bottom 10. 
the, the Hornets rolled out teams that were 29. Let me let me look at the four, the five years. They were 29th in in 2010 11, 30th, and then it goes to 29th again the first year of Davis, then 22nd, and then 27th. So it's not even just bottom 10. It's 29 and 30, with one exception of being 22. You know, and Monty for you know, like I mentioned earlier, he's a very conservative coach and one of the hallmarks he was your he's your traditional coach that you don't want to see in this era because he was all about playing big he was all about the mid-range shot and i really do think that was a portion you know, that was you can attribute that to him not seeing the league cha- league wide change coming and by the end of the davis era that was the first year when by the time Monty got fired that was the first year golden state won and i think even though the revolution was slowly creeping up and creeping up and creeping up, when Golden State won their championship, that's what really, truly set things off. And that's what kind of showed the Pelicans a guy like Omer Ashik was useless in the playoffs. And then the Pelicans signed him to a five-year deal. But, you know, that's a separate story. But, you know, going into the X's and O's of it, analytically, you, you look at this guy and you're like, how does he fit in the modern era? And it's been a very long time since he has coached. And since then he's been, you know, with the Spurs, he's been with OKC, he's been with Philly and Philly's a very analytically minded team. I think he's been around enough to see the change. So I don't think he'll be as antiquated as he, as he was back then. Uh, I'm optimistic about that, but I do think him slowing down the pace was actually a good thing for the Hornets. And and here's why. When you have a team full of young players, you're going to, from on a per possession basis, you're going to be at a pretty massive efficiency differential. So, you don't want the number of possessions to balloon. You want to keep them small, you can keep the variance small, and and that way you can end up winning games with the talent you have and and not get into games that are just track meets and the other team is lighting you up and you just don't have the offensive firepower to keep up with them with with the pelicans and and the hornets monty never had the most talented roster whether it was for health whether it was for rebuilding or whether it was just for youth i think he recognized for him to be an advantage he needed to slow the game down he really relies on his ball handlers he, he relies on his point guards to set things up he he loves, you know, every NBA team runs some variation of the Horns formation. But Monty Williams, with his with his big man, loves the Horns formation, and he's very creative out of out of it. He's always billed as a as a defensive coach. I don't think during the entire Davis era the Pelicans ever had an above average defense. But I think that was again lack of talent on the perimeter, lack of a good bench. Because you look at all the starting lineups, you know, lineups of Davis in them. They they fared really well defensively. They were almost elite, and so it's not like you get he can't put together a good defensive team if you give him the right players. He's just not some you know defensive magician like Pop, where you can pull a random name out of a hat like Bryn Forbes and he's a top five defense. But <laughs> you know, I I think Monty, for all his uh, reputation as a defensive coach, he's really underrated as an offensive coach. And I think that's because of his, his play calls and his X's and O's and his ability to put it, players in a position where they're able to succeed. One of the reasons his teams overachieved offensively is 
he loved pursuing offensive rebounds and giving his team another opportunity. Again, I think Monty understood possession efficiency more than he let on. And one of the ways he sort of sought to maximize that was to give his team more opportunities to score by the way of offensive rebounds, but also that's taking advantage of the skills that are on your team. Brian Anderson is a fantastic offensive rebounder or was once upon a time. Homer yeah. Ashik was, you know, is, is a tremendous rebounder. Davis is a freak. So utilizing his bigs, he was able to create an offense, um, you know, in 2014, 2015, the, the Pelicans had uh, an offensive rating that put him eighth in the league, which, you know, that's great given the players they had. And let me read off some of the names that, that were on that roster. The fifth, the person that got the fifth most minutes on that, on that roster was Quincy Pondexter. Seventh most minutes was Omer Oshek. Then you have Dante Cunningham, Norris Cole, Austin Rivers, Tony Douglas. I mean, to put together a, a top 10 offense with, with when your bench and then the meat of your team looks like that is pretty impressive. And one of the things I'll never forget uh, Monty doing is he had this play. I don't know if there's a name for it, but he has this play. I call it the hug play. And essentially, it's where he has a shooter. And the shooter's coming off a bunch of screens. And once he gets under uh, the basket and one of his teammates is setting a screen for him, they kind of hug each other and or like hug the defender there and kind of do like a ring around the rosy thing and do a little circle. And it confuses the opponents. And then the shooter streaks off and and he has an open three-point shot. And he loved to run it with Anthony Morrow. And then he had really creative sets for getting Eric Gordon open. He loved using the elevator door plays. He loved using the attention Davis drew on a, on a, on a pick and roll while they were diving. Um, he had really good ways of freeing up shooters. And I think his, his out of timeout plays and his offensive plays are, are really underrated. But that being said, uh, the league has changed. So I'm excited to see if he's going to incorporate the, the analytic push that every other team has done, or is he going to be more in the Byron Scott mold where he's like, we're not going to take that many threes. Now, I will say from you talking about it, it's starting to make sense to me why James Jones and the Suns would be interested in Monty Williams. But I do have kind of a two-part question for you. Uh, first, just boil it down. Do you think that Monty Williams would be a good coach for the Phoenix Suns roster and for the future of the Phoenix Suns trying to rebuild that culture? And secondly, would you rather that Monty Williams go to the Phoenix Suns or to the Los Angeles Lakers? So I'll answer the <laughs> second question first. Monty would be an awful fit in LA. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I don't, I, for him as a person, I don't want him going to LA, but also I don't want good things to happen to LA in the first place. So I, I have dual motivation Same. there. Um, but secondly, I think Monty is the right guy to set a culture for a young team. He has a very strong presence in the locker room. He's an excellent communicator. And I think he is the guy to bring you to the next step. I don't think he's the guy that takes you over to the next step. So he's a guy that's going to get your house in order and and make sure that all your players are, are developing right and you've got a strong culture set in and he's prepping you for that next coach. Maybe like, you know how you mentioned with, with Igor, he was ready to coach a, a team of more veteran players, a coach that is ready to take a team to the next step, kind of how Steve Kerr took over the Warriors. And you know what? You know, it, it was like adding gasoline to a fire. Uh, so I don't think Monty Williams, I, again, he, he may have changed. He may have learned a lot of things during his time on, on various staffs, but I really do think Monty is that first step guy that, that gets your house in order before, before you get a new person. Sam, you got any other questions? Uh, well, I think we should probably talk about 
I mean, you guys, just from a New Orleans standpoint, real quick, you just brought in tons of former Phoenix names. How are you feeling about David Griffin uh, and Aaron Nelson? And, uh, well, I guess Alvin Gentry is still there. I mean, how are you feeling about your offseason shaping up? Basically taking all the guys that made us successful uh, the last time we were successful. Man, I am I'm pumped about David Griffin. And not because he's David Griffin, but because of of the idea that he, he sort of symbolizes. With the, the Pelicans, the long-term complaint has always been that they care about football. So if you, if you aren't aware, the Pelicans owners also owns the New Orleans Saints. And the the complaint has always been that they care more about the football team. They don't invest in the Pelicans. And they, you know, they've they've had some shared staff over the past years. And up to a few weeks ago, the executive vice president of basketball operations is the general manager of the New Orleans Saints. He was a guy that was over Dell Demps. And you can kind of see the problems this this causes. And so when the Pelicans decided to hire David Griffin, to me, that symbolizes that they are willing to commit to a person fully. So they're going to empower him with all the resources he needs. They're, they're going to allow him to make all the changes he needs. They're going to allow him to bring in more front office staff, things that they have never signed off in the first place. And I don't think it would have happened had, had Davis not requested a trade and kind of you know, made the Pelicans look like a, a really crappy franchise. And I, I think that reputation was kind of earned. Um, but props to them. They, they've woken up. And I believe they've done all the right things since the trade request. They've hired the right person who is now making the right moves to hire guys like Aaron Nelson, who, again, it's about the reputation, right? The Suns, repu- Suns training staff carries a reputation amongst the players as being one of the best. And, you know, you've seen guys like Grant Hill and Shaq and Steve Nash shout him out. So... I think the Pelicans are, are trending in the right direction there. Okay, I got one last question for you. On a scale of 1 to 10, how likely do you think the Pelicans trade Drew Holiday? Because <laughs> we could we could use a guy like had, him. Had to slip it in there. <laughs> zero. I, 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 I figured. Honestly, zero. They, they, have committed, they have committed publicly and internally to him being the franchise guy. And so you know, I don't know if you guys have heard, but... David David Griffin kind of made headlines his introductory press conference. He was like, "Yeah, we're gonna try to keep Anthony Davis." Yeah, we talked about it last week. That that doesn't happen unless Drew signs off on it. It's Drew's team. They're already looking at it as, "Hey, is it worth adding a guy like Anthony Davis to Drew's team?" Given what's already happened, is the locker room gonna be fine? They're running decisions by him, and it, it, it'll it'll honestly take a lot for them to move on from Drew, and, and part of that will involve Drew explicitly saying hey i think my time here is done so i i I think drew would be a fantastic fit with devin booker Uh, i i really do believe that he probably can't get a better fit um from both a playmaking and a defensive standpoint but uh as it is i think the pelicans are are pretty pretty hell-bent on keeping him well, Shemit Dua, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to follow Shemit at Fear the Brown. Check out his writing for Bourbon Street Shots and listen to his podcast, In the Know, a New Orleans Pelicans podcast. Uh, actually, something to mention, we joined the Blue Wire uh, Podcast Network, so just just want to shout that out because you're also on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, right? Absolutely, yeah. This, this network's been growing. We're now doing playoff coverage as well, so it, we're happy to have you guys as a member of this network and hopefully we'll continue to do some some crossover pods and and maybe next time we can uh share some 
some off the record stories about about Monty Williams. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So make sure to uh, check out his uh, coverage of the New Orleans Pelicans. Thank you everyone for listening. Make sure to follow us at the Timeline Pod on Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast here. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. Hot day, sun's out, sweat starts beating thirsty after you already know what I be needing them 23 fluid ounces of that Arizona tea. And if you think you be playing around, you gotta listen carefully. Let's go. On a palmer, half and half, nothing beats a classic. I refreshed it with lemon while keeping it high key with iced tea. What does that mean? I don't know, but strawberry, kiwi, tropical, like from Tahiti. Crack it open, get some berry, no cherry, no dairy, just berry. Uh, those are just my favorites, though, but they have other flavors. So if you're more of a fan of watermelon or mango, want to do the tango, then they got what you need. Offer a price you can't beat. Whew. Yeah! I've been sipping on my Arizona tea. You say you don't like it, I'm like, what you mean? Only 99 cents, a price you can't beat. I've been sipping on my Arizona tea. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.